0: This is a University of Pentecost podcast. Let's get started. Sarah Dry in 2014 wrote a book called The Newton Papers. In an article or an excerpt from this book called Saving Isaac Newton, She documents that a man uh, had collected, a collector, a polymath, a linguist, a scholar had collected various rare antiquities, papers, etc. And uh, Newton died March 20th, 1727. He wrote over 8 million words. His manuscripts had been hidden for a century and a half until 1936 at the famous uh, historic Sotheby's auction, which was attended by two men. Uh, John Maynard Keynes and Abraham Yehuda. We're going to focus on the Jewish polymath Abraham Shalom Yehuda. Abraham Yehuda almost immediately grasped that the Newton papers that had been sold at Sotheby's were uniquely valuable, both as collectors items and as evidence of Newton's religious beliefs. Less than two weeks after the sale, he wrote to his wife, Ethel, that he was now excited about an unpublished essay by by Newton on biblical and theological questions that had been sold at Sotheby's, which is of the greatest significance for Newton's personal theological view on matters of faith. He said about trying to purchase the Newton papers and wrote to Ethel on July 28th. I am thrilled with the thought of acquiring them. He wrote a lot about the Bible and the Jews, about Kabbalah and all sorts of Jewish questions, Yehuda said. Nearly as quickly as Keynes had done, John Maynard Keynes, Yehuda assembled his own Newton collection. He, too, secured good deals from the dealer Gabriel Wells, who sold many lots to Yehuda at 15% commission, and from a man named Max, who sold him a few lots at 20% commission. In his letters to Ethel, Abraham Yehuda boasts of getting a great treasure which will be worth three times as much, if not more, very soon. At the time of the sale, Yehuda explained, the dealers did not realize how significant the manuscripts were, but that was changing fast. Yehuda, for one, seems to have immediately grasped their importance. He said, to have over 1,500 pages written by Newton in his own hand on the most important questions is very thrilling indeed, but not only on religion, prophecies, Bibles, faith and chronology, but also on alchemy. Mathematics and other purely scientific matters are the greatest importance for his studies and discoveries. It was almost too much of a good thing and Yehuda, who hurried down to Victoria Street in London to give a check to Wells, would not believe that I have the manuscripts before I get them. Yehuda was scathing about the museums and libraries that had failed to secure the manuscripts for Britain and bragged that with the upcoming tercentary of Newton's birth, the papers would soon be worth five or ten times What he had paid for them. For all of August and September, as he set about acquiring as many lots of the papers as possible, Yehuda endeavored to keep the significance of what he was buying a secret, to keep prices low and the manuscripts coming exclusively to him. But it was already very clear to him that the papers revealed that Newton was more of a monotheist than a Trinitarian. In some parts of the manuscripts, Newton himself had concluded that Jehovah is the unique God, meaning the one God. Just weeks after the sale, Yehuda was forming an appreciation of what the papers contained that went beyond what almost anyone else had understood about Newton. Extremely quickly, Yehuda was able to imaginatively integrate Newton's science with the new aspects of Newton revealed by the papers, his chronology and theology. He immediately rejected the notion that Newton's non-scientific writings were worthless. Like Plato's philosophy or Ptolemy's geography, he explained in a letter of August 30th, the results are antiquated, but the works bear the stamps of Newton's genius, and it will always have value, Abraham said. The speed with which he came to this conclusion suggests that he must have been well, well prepared to read the papers this way. But Yehuda himself felt that it was the papers that had changed him. My occupation with Newton's papers have opened a new world to me, and I am constantly under the spell of his personality, Yehuda confided to his wife, Ethel. In these times of crisis and ordeal, he exercises a calming and reassuring influence upon me, Yehuda said. But as Yehuda was writing this letter, the Nuremberg Laws had stripped Jews of their citizenship in Germany, and Jews were forbidden from marrying non-Jews. In March of that year, Hitler had, preoccup- had reoccupied the Rhineland, violating the Treaty of Versailles and raising the specter of war. The position of Jews in America was different than that was in Europe, for in Europe they were increasingly precarious. Yehuda grasped the redemptive potential of Newton's papers for the Jews, who could benefit from Newton's sympathy with their faith at a particularly vulnerable moment in history. More generally, Newton's writings contained truths that, w- that would survive destructions and isolations. Yehuda found a way to hope through, to, a way to view hope through the papers. He said, Eternity belongs to the heroes of the Spirit. Yehuda invested quite heavily in the purchase of Newton's papers. He spent more than 1,400 pounds. That would be 50,000 pounds in today's money or an equivalent of 84,000 US dollars in today's uh, 21st century money. And Yehuda sold some of his other manuscript stock to help fund the acquisition. He didn't even consider his acquisitions as being risky though. What he had bought was of obvious value to him. The papers, the ones he ended up with by his own estimation, with 3,400 folios, pages, he said were the best and most valuable works he had ever purchased. Like John Meener Keynes, Yehuda had a certain claim to arrogance, to seeing truths that others could not. Where Keynes had been schooled at Eton and Cambridge, Yehuda's education contracted within its span Jerusalem, where he was born in 1877, Basel Switzerland, where he attended the first Zionist Congress in 1897, and of course Germany, where he settled in for a series of post degrees at Frankfurt, Heidelberg, and Strasbourg universities, all in the pursuit of knowledge suitable for the study of ancient texts and ancient languages. Yehuda was the son of a rabbi. He was encouraged to study in the wider world, but he, expected to, he was also expected to observe Jewish law. An anecdote from his early education suggests something of his independent spirit and in the tightly constrained world he, he lived in, despite his travels. While studying in Frankfurt and living with a a Orthodox observant host family, he found himself unable to resist the urge to smoke a cigarette on the Sabbath day, to soften the sinfulness of his act, and to elude detection. He took a train to a nearby town. There he was unlucky enough to have been seen smoking by one of his relatives. This almost comic breach of Orthodox Judaism had far-reaching effects. His observant family rejected him and thereafter embarked, uh, caused him to embark on a solitary life. But he was well suited for it. He published his first book, The Arabs Antiquities, in 1893 when he was just 15 years old. He continued his language studies in Heidelberg and Strasbourg, studying the latter, those languages, with the great Oriental scholar Theodore Noldecki, who was clearly taken with this young scholar. A letter of recommendation was written by this man and described Yuda as a, Yehuda as a formidable linguist. Noldecki said he not only speaks his native language, the Arabic of Jerusalem, but after becoming well versed in the written Arabic he also acquired a thorough knowledge of the ancient medieval Arabic language and literature. Noldecki goes on to say that in addition to being a fluent speaker of German and writing it better than most Germans, his young student had an excellent command of the Hebrew language and literature, and he was no stranger to Assyrian, and that it would be an easy matter for him to learn English. By 1904, at the age of 17, Yehuda had his doctorate. The next year he put his prodigious language skills to use, teaching Semitic philology, the study of words, at a liberal rabbinical school and at the Oriental Seminar in Berlin University, at Berlin University, where he stayed until 1914. He then spent the next nine years in Berlin, eventually heading up the Department of Biblical Studies and Semitic Languages at Berlin University and lecturing on the exegesis, or the interpretation of the Old Testament, a subject to which he would remain devoted the rest of his life. That illicit cigarette was not an anomaly. Yehuda's irreverent attitude persisted. He caused a stir by lecturing on the Bible without wearing a, a yarmulke. But his refusal to follow Jewish laws, according to the letter, did not mean he neglected his Orthodox and Jewish past. Instead, he took a long view of history, seeking material to justify his own interpretations of tradition, however idiosyncratic they were. In 1915, Yehuda was offered a professorship in rabbinic literature and languages at the University of Madrid in Spain, the first such position to be created there since the expulsion of the Jews in 1492. Directed to make an appearance before King Alfonso the 13th, Yehuda took the opportunity to, to proclaim both his heritage and his independence. He said, I am not the first in my family who appears in audience before one of your majesty's family, he said and informed the monarch. He continued, it was in the mid-12th century when one of my forefathers, Shishet Benveniste, had the high honor of appearing before your majesty's forefather, King Alfonso the So this appointment prompted newspaper articles about Yehuda proclaiming him to be a remarkable scholar with accomplishments, his common heritage with the Jews of Spain, and his tenacious devotion to the subject that guarantees the wisdom of his appointment. He held his position in Spain for seven years witnessing and participating in the extraordinary efforts of the International Zionist Movement to secure a mandate in Palestine and making the first of a string of enemies in that movement beginning with bitterness towards some of his fellow Jews and their ideas on how to run the Jewish state. And this lasted his entire life. Yehuda left Madrid in 1922 to embark on what would become a full 20 years of traveling, lecturing, and teaching. During this period he acquired a serious taste and a facility for acquiring rare manuscripts, particularly funded by money inherited by his wife Ethel, which led him to Northern Africa, the Middle East, and Western and Eastern Europe. He taught in England at King's College, University College, London, Oxford, and Cambridge, and lectured at such places as the Royal Asiatic Society of London, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Yale University in America, and the University of Cairo. He spent the Nazi period, 1933 to 1945, in London, in the house of Ellsworthy Road, where John Maynard Keynes wrote to him. So a visitor recalled extending his hand in the gloom to the foyer of his apartment building, to something formally elegant and stern thinking it was a professor instead this man encountered a life-size bust of Abraham Yehuda the man himself presiding in the reception room next door just a funny anecdote Yehuda may have become a caricature of himself but his learning was formidable The fact remains that Yehuda, a Sephardic Jew born in Jerusalem to a family that had settled in Baghdad sometime after Spain, expelled the Jews in 1492. He was the first person to read Newton's private theological writings, who was both able to understand them on their own terms and perhaps even more crucial, he was willing to do so. Back in 1777, a man named Samuel Horsley may have looked at Newton's religious writings, but he said nothing of it in his opera Omnia, David Brewster and Jean-Baptiste Biot both saw Newton's religious writings. And while they came to different conclusions about what the writings meant for understanding Newton, they both were concerned primarily with Newton as a scientist. And whatever Luart working in the 1870s in that long delayed catalog with Stokes, Adams, and Liveling may have thought privately about the writings of Newton, He went on the road to dismiss them as mere exercises in penmanship and evidence of an unhealthy obsession. Yehuda turned the thing on its head. He said, his studies offer material about his concepts, wrote Yehuda in an unpublished essay on the Newton papers. He continued, the manuscripts even more than printed works, said Yehuda, the theology manuscripts were not secondary. They were offered as a way of understanding Newton's scientific concepts that had ultimately more revealing information about Newton than the printed works. What seemed odd, in fact, offered a true estimate of Newton. Yehuda said, it is necessary, therefore, that the remaining manuscripts are examined very carefully so that the many things which appear odd today receive their deserved vindication. This is a duty not only towards Newton and his country, but also towards all humanity, Yehuda said. After all, Yehuda was a scholar of history pushing for the hard work of seeing the odd old world that Newton inhabited in Newton's way. Finally, all the excesses of the archive would be welcomed. It was the very extensiveness of his theological writings, the obsessive drafting, the lengthiness of the treatises that spoke of Newton's desire to extend the universalistic character of Christianity. By this, Yehuda meant that Newton envisioned a truer, deeper religion. One that surpassed mere sectarianism or, that is, denominations. That did not see the problem of religion exhausted in Christianity or Judea, but wanted to include all antique religions and the spiritual development of all other peoples besides the Israelites. This was a message with obvious resonance in a Europe torn by war. Rather than condescending to the eccentricities of an old man, Yehuda granted Newton the significant objective. It was the natural reason for the exuberance, not to say obsessiveness, of the writings. Rather than arguing against the drafts as nearly all previous commentators had done, Yehuda would argue on their behalf. The drafts were evidence not of insanity or senility, but of a vigorous faith that did not waver even in the presence of staggering amounts of historical data or scriptural language of the most obscure kind. The recopying, the fact that Newton had written sections two or even three times, was evidence of the difficulty of the task as well as Newton's passion for it. Yehuda said he strived for comprehension of the sense of the work and interpreted it completely, several times with the highest degree of care. Yehuda's vision of Newton looks very different from any of the previous Newtons that people conjured up by his would be biographers, scholars, and catalogers. But then Yehuda himself looked very different from any other Newton scholar. He saw language, and specifically scripture, As a code in which history itself could be read. Language bore the traces of lived experiences. And great books such as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, bore the traces of the history of the peoples it described. Like the tombs of the Egyptians, the Bible was a testament to history. And like the Egyptian hieroglyphs, the language of the Bible within it could be studied to reveal its true meaning. Yehuda was a forensic philologist, a man of words, a practitioner of a brand of so-called higher criticism, whereas lower criticism concerned itself with the nuts and bolts of transcribing the scriptures, the errors that were introduced to the, into the text by lazy or unskilled scribes, the almost unavoidable mutations of a manuscript that as it underwent its many copyings years and years ago. Higher criticism after all was the bigger game, capturing not the simply uh, literal meaning of the words written long ago, but the entire worldview of a culture in which those words were written. What did the writer of the text mean to accomplish at that moment in time? What events surrounded its composition? Such questions seem plain enough, but when asked of the Bible, they become sensational. Yehuda sought to trace the history of the Torah, the first five books, through the telltale clues, words, customs, manners, and thoughts borrowed by the Jews from the Egyptians, with whom they lived in a close contact relationship during the time of exile 430 years. He called this proving the Hebrew Egyptian relationship. Yehuda said. He was not the first man nor the only scholar to seek to understand the Bible this way. What was distinctive about his approach however, was his emphasis on the Egyptian as opposed to the Babylonian or the Assyrian influences on the Bible. In a way it was precisely what Newton had tried to do to reduce the profusions of language in the Bible to a set of distinct meanings from which certain conclusions could be drawn. In the hundreds, if not the thousands of pages on revelation of prophecy that Newton wrote, now owned by Yehuda, Newton sought to translate the wild images and the dense metaphors of prophecy into equivalent terms that were more stable and understandable. If he could fix the motifal meanings of those writings into a set of equivalences, much could follow. Confirmation of the contents of true religion, the truth of prophecy in the past, further evidence of God's omnipotence, and the true language of history. Similarly, what Yehuda had done in his own work on the accuracy of the Bible was to demonstrate that the Jews had in fact walked over the ground. It was said that they had migrated from Ur through Canaan to Egypt and back to the land of promise. Incredibly, enough. It was possible to follow these long effaced footsteps through the clues left in the language of the Bible itself. Yehuda said, in the development of the Hebrew language, one can follow the route of Israel's wanderings during the last 25 centuries. So for Yehuda the Bible was a vibrant mix of cultures, practices, perspectives, whose very form testified the cheek by jowl experiences of the Jews, Egyptians, Babylonians, and Assyrians in the deep past. And yet he reserved a place of honor among the Babel of the chosen people who, he claimed, borrowed not so much from the verma- vernacular of primitive peoples in Israel's surroundings, but the languages of the most cultivated peoples of the world. This was not cultural relativism. For all the celebration of diversity, Yehuda was unafraid to assign prestige to the Jews, so long and so frequently abused. This was not scholarship, content to dabble in eccentricities and obliquities. To say that Yehuda was unafraid of controversy is not to say enough. He loved the brouhaha, the duels with other scholars. He lived a life at once public and solitary, giving many talks. And participating in much correspondent, but without much of the way of fellowship. According to the archivist, his enormous correspondence contains few sustained relations. That is, thanks perhaps to the legacy of his difficult personality, little had been written about Yehuda himself, though his archive of personal correspondence and manuscripts is extensive and his role in the intellectual universe of immigrating Jews in the first half of the 20th century is substantial and he seems to have grasped a truth about Newton that few had grasped. Abraham Yehuda's goal in acquiring manuscripts was ultimately historical, to reveal how biblical language had been shaped by the very history it described, or, as he put it, that the biblical narratives by their form, their style, and their linguistic garb, and particular coloring, could only have developed in the course of the migrations of the patriarchs from earth, Canaan to Egypt, and the return of the Hebrews from Egypt back to the land of promise, Yehuda said. He also wanted to claim the ground of higher criticism for himself, to take it back from the practitioners, men such as Julius Wellhausen, perhaps the best-known German biblical scholar at that time, who in Yehuda's view had taken things way too far. Yehuda said, in the long run, it became customary to consider it as highly scientific to challenge everything biblical and to alter the texts at one's Heart's desire, Yehuda said. For Yehuda, this was a vision of criticism taken to the extremes. The text reduced to nothing but error. The possibility of meaning dissolved amid a multiplicity of authors, leaving only commentary, a Talmud, with no Torah left in it. He thought in particular that too many sources were being attributed to the Pentateuch, that would be well-housing, and that too many experts were exerting themselves in the art of text alterations and source hunting. Thus, he said, The original text was distorted and disfigured and the place was offered a quite new text of pure invention, Yehuda said. In Newton, who himself sought to return a blemished Christianity to its purer origins, Yehuda found a kindred soul. Interpreting ancient texts didn't require robbing them of a fixed meaning. Both Newton and Yehuda sought instead to find a singular truth amid the variations. Even in the obtruse realms of textual criticism, much was at stake. As war raged in Europe in the 1940s, Yehuda made a case in a speech in New York for why it was so important to prove the accuracy of the Bible. Doing so was more than a scientific concern. It was a moral duty so that the precious treasure that was the Bible was preserved from the destructive theories of higher criticism that may have contributed to the spreading of those disruptive ideas which to a large extent paved the way in Germany to that culture of radicalism, racialism, paganism, and self-deification As in the darkest ages of human history, Yehuda said. Yehuda's essays indicate that the value he attached to his Newton manuscripts was intellectual, cultural, not monetary. But a curious letter written in 1940 is a testimonial of Albert Einstein. At Yehuda's behest, it provides a hint that he once considered selling the manuscripts. Though it is unclear how they first met, Einstein and Yehuda had corresponded extensively from 1933. Through the end of the decade, trading opinions on the increasingly dire situation in Europe and the political and de- diplomatic maneuverings surrounding the partition plans for Palestine. Neither man mentions any of Yehuda's dealings in books and manuscripts, including his purchase in the summer and fall of thirty six of the Newton Papers. Yehuda was more concerned with winning Einstein's support for his views on how matters in Israel should be conducted, that is, Zionism and the form of government. Which Einstein warned such polemics would not be productive. In early 1940, Einstein helped arrange for Yehuda and his wife to travel to New York. In the late summer of that year Yehuda visited Einstein at a summer retreat at Lake Saranac in the Adirondacks. The two men evidently discussed Newton, for preserved in the archives of both men is a letter in Einstein's hand dated September 1940 that details Einstein's views on Newton's private religious writings. This was prompted, no doubt, by Yehuda. The document is notable for what we can infer from both Einstein and Yehuda's attitudes towards the Newton papers. For while it is possible that Einstein made a sustained investigation of the papers for himself that Yehuda owned, there is no evidence in either man's extensive personal archive of letters that this was the case. Instead, it seems much more likely that Yehuda called upon his friend, his famous acquaintance, Einstein, for a favor to help him in disposing of his, Einstein or his Newton collection. So this letter from Einstein proclaims the importance of the collection, which would in turn serve as an excellent introduction to libraries that might be interested in buying the manuscripts. Einstein wrote, Einstein wrote, My dear Yehuda, Newton's writings on biblical subjects seem to me especially interesting because they provide deep insight into the characteristic intellectual features and working methods of this important man. The divine origin of the Bible is for Newton absolutely certain a conviction that stands in curious contrast to the critical skepticism that characterizes his attitude towards the churches. From this confidence stems the firm conviction that the seemingly obscure parts of the Bible must contain important revelations to illuminate which one need only decipher its symbolic language. Newton seeks this decipherment or interpretation by means of his sharp systematic thinking, grounded on the careful use of all the resources at his disposal. While the formative development of Newton's lasting physics works must remain shrouded in darkness because Newton apparently destroyed his preparatory notes. We do have in this domain of his works on the Bible drafts and their repeated modifications. These mostly unpublished writings, therefore, allow a highly interesting insight into the mental workshop of this unique thinker. That's the letter that Einstein wrote to Yehuda to help increase the value of his letters, his manuscripts. So much as Stokes and Adams had before him, Einstein considered Newton's private papers with an eye towards gleaning as much as possible of his method of discovery, what he refers to as the formative development of his works in physics. Einstein implicitly implicitly links the process by which Newton developed his physics and his theology. By studying the one, we might gain insight into the other. He describes Newton's search for the secret truths of the Bible as deriving not from magical reasoning, as John Maynard Keynes had thought, but from sharp, systematic thinking. Newton's so-called mental workshop. Gestige, the Werkstatt, is metaphorically the same place where both his physics and his theology were created. Drafts are in no way evidence of dangerous obsession or weak-minded repetition, but are the evidence of a mind at work on the way to creation. Confirming the likelihood that Yehuda was seeking a testimonial to help him sell the papers to a library, Einstein added at the end of his letter that he considered it highly desirable that Newton's writing mentioned above be united in one location, and and these writings would then be made accessible to researchers. While Einstein was happy to help Yehuda to try to sell the papers and to support the cause of scholarship, later in his life Einstein expressed a different view on the proper disposition of the papers. In an interview with the historian of science I.B. Cohen, and that took place just two weeks before Einstein died in 1955, Einstein spoke among other things about Newton's theological writings. Einstein said that it was significant that Newton had sealed them all up in a box as indication Einstein thought of Newton's awareness of how imperfect they were Newton had obviously not wanted to publish these speculations during his own lifetime Einstein thought with some passion that he was that he that they hoped they would not be published speaking as someone who had lived most of his life squarely in the public eye Einstein defended Newton's right to privacy even after death Rather than lamenting the absence of a complete edition of Newton's works, Einstein praised the Royal Society's resistance to publishing writings that had remained unpublished during Newton's life. Correspondence could reasonably be printed having been made somewhat public during Newton's life, but there was always a possibility that the letters contained certain personal things which should not be published. Despite Einstein's letter, Yehuda never did sell the Newton papers. In 1942 he traveled as a refugee to America where Like so many other scholars uprooted by World War II, he found a place at the New School for Social Research in New York. For several years, he ran the school's Center for the Study of the Near and Middle East, and he gave lectures on biblical literature, Islamic architecture, ornamental art, Semitic inscriptions, advanced Arabic, and a survey course on the history of the ancient Near East. No evidence suggests that that Yehuda shared his Newton papers with his students. Yehuda and his wife Ethel moved in the last years of his life to New Haven, Connecticut. And though he was not on the faculty of Yale University, he hoped to make connections with scholars who, who worked there. Instead, he was to be lonely as never before. In addition to the Newton papers, Yehuda had acquired over the course of more than 40 years of collecting what was reputed to be the largest and most valuable assemblage of rare Arabic books and manuscripts ever to be found in private hands. The bulk of these, an incredible 4,800 Arabic texts spanning a 1,000 years of history, ranging from astronomy, mathematics, literature, geography, philosophy, and medicine, they ended up in the Princeton University Library, making it the largest repository of Islamic manuscripts in North America, and so it remains today. Yehuda also sold some Arabic medical manuscripts to the U.S. Armed Forces Medical Library in Washington, D.C., as well additional materials to Dublin's Chester Beatty collection. In August 1951, while on vacation with Ethel at Saratoga Springs, New York, Yehuda died of a heart attack at age 74. His obituary appeared the next day in the New York Times, hailing him as a noted expert on the Bible and Orientalist. He had died in many ways, an isolated and angry man. His learning was immense, as the Times obituary columnist noted. His reasoning and judgment, however, were not consistently sound, they also wrote. The disposal of his collection after his death was to be as fraught as his relationships were in life. Before he died, he had sent some of the books and papers from his library to a warehouse in New Haven, Connecticut, to await packing and shipment overseas but he never picked them up or designated a recipient for them. Instead, the books sat in this warehouse for several years until Ethel Yehuda, on her husband's death, who had inherited the entire library, valued at more than 80,000 U.S. dollars, she began to prepare them for shipment. So despite Yehuda's lifelong anti-Zionism, a result of his deep discord with the prominent Zionist and Israel's first president Chaim Wiseman, among others, Ethel decided to donate donate all of Yehuda's books and manuscripts, including the Newton materials, to the Jewish National and University Library at Hebrew University in Jerusalem on the top of the Mount of Olives. She had been convinced by a Boston book dealer named Abraham Bornstein to honor the people of Israel with a bequest of the books and manuscripts. More important than any quarrels Yehuda may have had during his lifetime, was the legacy he could leave in the form of his books and manuscripts to the Jewish people. Ethel made the announcement at a luncheon in Israel, which was attended by chaim Wiseman of Israel, on January 28th, 1953. Soon afterwards, she began to arrange the material that she'd been sitting on in the warehouse for so many years. She cataloged and created the material carefully, many of it still unfinished at the time of her death in 1955. Though Ethel had publicly announced her intention to make the gift, she didn't make any written provision in her will regarding the donation to the university. One of the four trustees of the estate, one of her nephews of her late, one of the nephews of her late husband, he objected to the donation to the library at Hebrew University. Resulting court case dragged on until 1966 when the Supreme Court of Connecticut ruled that the library, Hebrew University, should be the donation site and they found that Ethel Yehuda's intentions had been clearly stated orally to a number of people before her death. The case of Hebrew University versus Nye has subsequently served as an important precedent for honoring the intention of donation in the absence of written documentation. The fate of the collection of Abraham Yehuda, a man for whom written language carried a promise of revealing deep and lasting truths, depended ultimately on spoken words. Following the court's decision, the collection, including all the Newton papers, were finally created up and shipped to Israel. And uh, that's the end of the uh, article. But I just wanted to state that these papers of Newton were not actually discovered and, and made available to the general public until 1996 when they were posted to the Internet for all to see. Thanks for listening. See you next time.